Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about Black on the Air, hosted by the one and only, the great one, Larry Wilmore. Even though he's a Lakers fan, I still like him. I think he's talented. But he has all kinds of guests on, from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Al Franken to Bernie Sanders. You name it, they're coming on. Pop culture, politics, newsmakers. And then at, at the beginning of every podcast, Larry does a little riff about whatever is either sticking in his car or things that he's enjoying. Although he has been enjoying much lately the way the world's going. But uh, Larry will riff on anything. And then he has guests on. It's great. If you liked everything else that he's done, comedy-wise, if you love this Comedy Central show, you will love this podcast. It is a medium that he has built for it. It's called Black on the Air, hosted by Larry Wilmore. Get it wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Baum, and I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com, and so is Ben Lindbergh, who joins me now. Ben! Hello! How you doing? I'm doing well. There's a very specific cadence to hello and welcome. Yes. And I wonder where that came from. I think I'm sort of copying uh, Jeremy Clarkson, his Top Gear hello and welcome. <laughs> I think I stole it from our colleague Chris Ryan possibly. Yeah. Maybe Crystal from Jeremy Clarkson too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to bring Jeff Passon on. He is, I don't want to offend anybody else by saying that he is my personal favorite regular guest, but we're going to talk about Bruce Maxwell kneeling for the national anthem. We're going to talk about Nets. We're going to talk about Shohei Otani. So we're going to get to all that later in the episode. Mm-hmm. But first I want to bring Game of Thrones back up. Have you seen the Nationals? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I have. I saw Bryce Harper as Ghost. It was nice to see Ghost again. Protect Ghost! <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen him in quite a while, so even if it takes the form of Bryce Harper, that's nice. I you haven't seen Bryce Harper in quite a while either. Yeah, I saw some Unsullied. I thought they did a, a fairly good job. They really went into it. I was somewhat surprised to see the number of Faith Militant that I saw. I would not have expected that to be such a popular costume, but well done, Nationals. Yeah, I wonder if... Sammy Solis said it was a rookie thing, but he was dressed up like a faith militant and he is not himself a rookie. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wonder what's up with that. I will say, first of all, dress up work outings, which is sort of what this is, which is kind of why I've long said players seem to like playing for Joe Madden, but I personally would very much not like to work for (laughs) Joe Madden. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're into it, you know, then then this is great. I will say that uh, after Major League Baseball has discouraged teams from hazing their rookies by having them dress up like women, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is it's amazing what not falling back on the same lazy, sexist, transphobic, uh, not particularly funny or creative jokes has opened up in terms of Game of Thrones instead. This is better for everyone. So so this is pretty awesome. What is not awesome, however, is uh, what the Angels have been doing. Uh, Pedro Mm, Mora of the LA Times reported last week that he noticed that the Angels had swapped Jesse Chavez and Bud Norris. They moved Norris from the bullpen to the rotation and Chavez from the rotation of the bullpen. Norris had pitched in 56 games all in relief and he has a half million dollar bonus if he makes 60 relief appearances. Chavez had started 21 games. He gets a quarter million dollars if he starts 22. He gets half a million dollars if he starts 24. 
I'll quote Billy Epler, the Angels GM. It's just a coincidence, end quote. And I want to say that's total bullshit. And <laughs> this is just nickel and dime crap. So lay out the evidence for me here, or at least refute the performance-based argument for why this is completely justified. Because, you know, we're not talking about the best pitchers in baseball here. Well, I mean, Jesse Chavez hasn't been great. It's just very, very curious that why at exactly 21 starts, they figured out that he was not the guy they wanted in their rotation. Like they didn't know Mm -hmm. this after 18 starts. They didn't, you know, want to give him until 23 to figure it out. And at this point, I guess they were closer. They the the twins hadn't really pulled away at this point. Right. That would be the, the charitable interpretation, I guess, is that maybe they didn't expect to be so competitive. But when it got down to the wire. But like Norris was good mm-hmm. for a little while and then he sort of fell off. And like this is obviously the place where if there's a middle reliever you don't really trust anymore, the obvious place to put him is into the starting rotation. And if they're doing like a bullpen game kind of thing, then why Norris? Why make Norris in particular start uh, if mm-hmm. not to screw him out of his bonus? So, mm-hmm. it, I mean, and these are both veterans and they're, this is not the same as doing this to, you know, some 24 year old kid who's only made $800,000 in his entire career, but it's still shitty. And we as fans should not tolerate this from teams. Yeah, Chavez has a 6.15 ERA in the second half in 16 games, and that's mostly out of the bullpen aside from three starts. So he has not made a great case for more innings, but if obviously I'm with you, if the desire here was just to manipulate their bonuses and not trigger those. Mm -hmm. uh, This is exactly what it looks like. Exactly what it it would look like. It certainly does. I mean, it's. The, the timing is uh, is very convenient, as Pedro pointed out. But yeah, I mean, clearly the, the performance has not been there. But if there was anything other than performance involved here, that is not something that you want to see from a Major League Baseball team, which is worth billions of dollars. Yeah, I look forward to the Players Association finding out about this in three weeks and being, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm shocked that this is going on and doing uh-huh. absolutely nothing. <laughs> so we are down to essentially one playoff spot that is being contended here. I I guess you could say that clearly there are some teams that have not been mathematically eliminated, but for all intents and purposes here, as we speak, the Angels are five games back of the Twins. The Cubs pulled away from the Brewers a bit. We're really down here. You know, there's Yankees, Red Sox, but at, at this point, the realistic team that could potentially get into the playoffs that is not currently in line for a playoff spot would be the Brewers. It's the NL second wildcard spot, where as we record on Sunday night, the Rockies have gained a game on the Brewers. So they are two games up now with a week or so left in the season. And I am torn here. I'm conflicted. You wrote something for The Ringer last week about how you think the playoffs are better with the Rockies, and I agree with you there, except that I also think that the playoffs are better with the Brewers, so I'm not sure which team deserves it, 
more, which team I would want to see more, which team makes the playoffs more fun. I think the Brewers have been one of the best stories of the season, the way that they pushed the Cubs and the Cardinals all year long and were ahead of their rebuild schedule and just hit on so many guys who they plucked out of the scrap pile, essentially. And it's really been admirable what they've managed to do this season. And I didn't expect it to continue. I wrote a somewhat fawning article about the Brewers rebuilds in the middle of the season. And even I at the time didn't expect to be talking about the Brewers in contention for a playoff spot in the last few days of the season here. And that's where we are. So on the one hand, I want to see them rewarded for their valiant attempt. On the other hand, I want to see the Rockies rewarded too and don't want to see them have a big collapse and blow the playoff spot and that franchise has certainly had its fair share of suffering too. So yeah. I'm not sure which which one a neutral party should be rooting for here. For me, it really comes down to, I mean, the biggest consideration here is I think Coors Field looks better on TV than Miller Park does. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like it's, I, I would like to make some sort of grander statement about how the Rockies feel and like, uh, whether the the Brewers do to a certain extent sort of feel sort of 2003 Royalty or like 2006 Padresy, where it's just a, mm-hmm. a team that sort of that just sort of played over its head. And I don't know that I get that mm-hmm. vibe. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but more of this than I probably like I should have stronger opinions than uh, which ballpark I'd, I'd rather see on TV, <laughs> although it's extremely likely that whichever team comes out of the uh, the second wild card never gets to play a home game. So they just mm-hmm. get waxed yeah. by Arizona in, in the first right. game of the postseason, which is probably what's going to happen. So, yeah. And I don't know that either of these teams makes a very formidable wild card game opponent. I mean, it's one game, so there's not all that much stock you can put into one team's chances, but they don't have, I suppose, the dominant pitcher that you wouldn't want to face. You, you don't want to see Kyle Freeland white knuckle his way to, <laughs> uh, was that, it was that, um, oh God, what was that guy's Joe Saunders? Uh, oh yes. Yeah. Double play specialist. Yeah. Joe Saunders. He, yeah. He, like he beat, Darvish in the in the wildcard game in 2012, right. didn't he? Like that's I'm imagining yeah, think, that like. Right. We we uh, talked to Ron Washington right. about that. Yeah. But uh, with Kyle Freeland and um, either Granky or Robbie Ray, that would be. Yeah, could happen. Hilarious. Yeah. I mean, the Rockies, I thought, were playing over their heads, too, at the beginning of the season. But that has corrected itself, which is why they are in the position they're in at this point. Their run differential and record are almost perfect matches. So. I don't know. I guess I will just uh, be happy for whichever team makes it and somewhat sad for the fans of the team that does not. But on both sides, it has been a a valiant run to this point. So uh, we will see how that plays out yeah. over the next Mostly, week. I'm sad for us that we've only got this one very low stakes playoff race yeah. that we are kind of lukewarm about both teams. Yep, that is right. So as a result of that, we will now move on to our main topics for today. And so Saturday night, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed and I was reading Steph Curry's response to Donald Trump's tweet about Steph Curry's response to Donald Trump. It goes on and on and on like that. Anyway, I was, you know, seeing the 
latest outpouring from basketball players, football players. How and- many more football <laughs> players have you heard of now as opposed <laughs> than on Friday, Friday evening? Yeah, it was a very short list last <laughs> week. So <laughs> I think it has increased exponentially. But yeah, so I was watching Steph Curry and I was just thinking to myself, well, what would it look like if a baseball player were to be put or put himself in an equivalent position. I didn't expect to see it. Certainly didn't expect to see it moments later. But you were really excited happened. about this. I was at. I got messages from like <laughs> like three or four different modes of communication. You, you <laughs> yeah, told I tried me you about on Slack. I yeah. tried you on GChat. I texted you. <laughs> you were actually out yes. on a Saturday night. So congratulations on that. I was very not. I was unusual. On <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it happened just shortly after I was watching that video. Bruce Maxwell, A's catcher, took a knee during the national anthem and he faced the flag. He had his hand over his heart. He had a teammate, Mark Hanna's hand over Maxwell's shoulder. And he spoke about this a bit on Saturday. He declined to speak about it on Sunday, except to our guest, Jeff Passan. So let us bring in Jeff. Hello, Jeff. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? We're doing well. So how was your conversation? Or I guess before we ask about the details, we should ask about who Bruce Maxwell is <laughs> as a person just <laughs> and as a player, maybe because I think a, a typical fan could be excused for not being all that familiar with Bruce Maxwell before this weekend. I think that's kind of the beauty of this story. Yeah. Um, Bruce Maxwell is a part-time catcher, you know, he, he faces right-handed pitchers and uh, the, the A's don't know if he is the guy long-term they're hoping to find out, but he's not somebody who has long-term job security. And uh, the fact that he still went out and, and did this at the peril of his own career, potentially uh, of his livelihood of the thing he loves uh, I think makes it all the more powerful. Uh, he is uh, a, uh, I, I wouldn't say he's an army brat. He was born uh, on an army base in Germany. His father's been in the service for his whole career. Uh, he moved to Alabama. Uh, he has a black father and a white mother. So being a mixed race child in Alabama was not an easy thing to do growing up, but mm-hmm. I think it it really informed him about what life can be like in America, the struggles that exist. And I think it prepared him for this moment. Uh, He told me he's been thinking about doing this for a long time, but when uh, Donald Trump went out and called uh, NFL players who were taking knees before games, sons of bitches, uh, it really made him mad. And I think that, that anger spurred him to do what he did because he said to himself, if not now, then when there, there are a bunch of theories out there uh, as to why this kind of protest is so uncommon in baseball, whereas it's relatively common in, in football and basketball. And I, you know, I think it really boils back down to what Adam Jones said last year about baseball being a white man's game. And just demographically, it's difficult to be the one it's, it's more difficult to, to take a stand like this if you don't have teammates behind you. Um, but there, there are other elements from, you know, baseball's culture of conformity to, 
to how baseball players sort of get socialized. Uh, they a lot of them don't have that kind of that uh, socializing experience in college the way that every single American NBA and NFL player does. So I'm curious as to whether you think it's just a demographic issue makes it or the demographics of the game make it difficult for somebody to to speak out or whether you think that there are other elements to it. I think all of the above. And I think you encapsulated it really well there. Um, it, one of the more interesting parts of this whole thing to me was that before he did this, he called a meeting with his teammates, his manager, Bob Melvin, A's ownership, and explained to them why he was doing what he was doing. And I think that part goes to the baseball culture that, uh, that more or less stifles the self. Uh, to be an individual in baseball is frowned upon and, and it's looked down upon. And it's really unfortunate. I think that the, the game is the way that it is in a lot of ways, lacking uh, the personalities and the stars of other sports because of that. And we can look at a guy like Yasiel Puig, who for uh, all of his foibles, and there certainly are some, has been railed upon mostly because he's trying to bring stylistic elements to his play. And, and people don't like that. They see it as uppity and uh, it's sad, I think. And it's something that I hope changes, but being an African-American in baseball, it's a lonely thing. And the, you know, one of the, one of the more interesting uh, anecdotes that I got talking, not just, with Bruce Maxwell, but with some of his friends around the game, uh, there's a, a, a prospect for the angels named Sherman Johnson. And, uh, he, he, you know, he wanted to go out to Arizona to, to train early one year and Bruce Maxwell really did not know him, but he said, stay at my house. And so Sherman Johnson went and stayed at his house and Sherman Johnson didn't have a ride to the angels complex on a daily basis. So Bruce Maxwell would get up 30, 45 minutes early and take him to the angels complex before he went to do his own workouts. And I think there's a kinship there among African-American players where they feel like they have to not just look out for themselves, but look out for one another, because if they don't, the loneliness is going to overwhelm them. And, and it's, it's such a sad thing to say that and, and to understand the experience uh, of a black baseball player is very similar to the experience of a, a black man or a black woman in America in 2017. It, you feel like you have to defend for yourself and overcome all of these obstacles in your way. But at the same time, you don't want to leave your brethren behind. And there's that shared and common experience that that really binds and unites them. And I think it's something that's beautiful and special. And it's the reason that African-American culture is as strong and and mighty as it is. It seems to me that maybe Maxwell's background and the way he went about this 
inoculated him against at least some of the criticism. I'm sure he is taking a ton regardless, but the way that he kind of planned it out, he talked to his team, he had their support, they were ready to release a statement backing him up. They had Mark Canna putting his hand on his shoulder throughout this protest. And, you know, even the fact that he was on the field, he was facing the flag, he had his hand over his heart. He comes from the military background. If you know those things, not that yeah. Anyone who's going to tweet about it necessarily has taken the time to to learn those things about him. But if you know all of that background, it becomes a little more difficult to lodge the usual backlash, which, you know, is often senseless as it is. But it, it seems like the way that he went about this and the team went about this at least may have insulated him from some of that criticism, one would hope. And, and I don't know whether... This is a scenario that would have played out the same way in any ballpark, in any roster with any player who had decided to do this or whether the fact that it's the A's and it's the Bay Area and this is a team that has had some outspoken players like Sean Doolittle and, and others in the past, whether that made this any easier for him. Theoretically, it should inoculate him from that, but it's 2017 and it's the United States of America. And no matter how conscientious you are trying to go about something and to do it the quote unquote right way, there's never a right way for this kind of thing. And I, I think that he did it respectfully. Uh, I think that he did it knowing what was going to happen and and aware of it. But at the same time, uh, naive to just how different his life is going to be now. Uh, he's the first guy. And I think if Adam Jones, for example, had done it, or if CC Sabathia had done it, 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 the reaction would have been a little bit different because you can look at those guys and say, each of them has made a hundred million dollars in their career. And how can you possibly, uh, have, beef with the United States of America when when the the institutions of it have given you so much in your life and have given you all this privilege. Bruce Maxwell hasn't had those privileges. And I think because of that, uh, it, it makes what he's doing that much more powerful. Uh, I almost look at this, and I don't think this was intentional, but I, I look at what happened back uh, in 1947. Uh, when when Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, he was chosen because he had the right temperament, because he was the person who could take the the insults and and the racism and represent black people well. And it's sad looking back that that was the threshold that was needed. But I think in this case, somebody who does come from a military family somebody who does have a black father and a white mother, somebody who's in Oakland, who's with this organization uh, that, that has supported uh, so much in the past. Uh, it feels like he really was the perfect guy for it. I'm curious to see what you, you think about uh, the way that these protests have evolved. Cause it's the, the way that it's, it's been covered is there, people are calling them anthem protests or, or, you know, protesting the flag or something like that. And when Colin Kaepernick and guys like Malcolm Jenkins uh, soon after him really started doing this, it was a very specific issue. It was about uh, police being able to literally get away with murder uh, 
whenever they wanted. And, there, you know, and when Kaepernick started, he laid out, you know, there were very specific things that the reasons that he wanted to take this stand. And over time, as more people have got involved, the the conversation sort of the very pointed original nature of this protest. And that sort of struck me this weekend as this just sort of this is no longer really about police brutality in the public imagination. This is, you know, sort of a, a generalized protest of the sports world firing back at Donald Trump. And just reading your, your quotes um, or Maxwell's uh, quotes that, that you reported on uh, uh, this morning, there's no mention of the original you know, the 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 specific original uh, protest that, that Kaepernick uh, was making. So it's, you know, not that he not that everybody who kneels to protest racism has to protest it the exact same way. But I'm just sort of curious about how how you feel about this sort of thing evolving over the past year. Does it blunt it? Does it how does how does having owners standing hand in hand with players sort of change the message? Yeah, I think it does the opposite of blunted. Uh, I think the evolution of it shows the the beauty of it, and frankly, was probably the ultimate intention of Colin Kaepernick in the first place. I think that police brutality uh, was the easiest way to introduce this idea uh, of the activist athlete back to a society that had grown used to the Michael Jordans of the world, whose only activism was for the brands that they're promoting. Um, for, for Maxwell, though, to take this and others, certainly he's not the only one. LeBron James uh, earlier in the day, uh, both his tweet and and his his live stream, I think, laid it out very clearly that Colin Kaepernick was the one who put the foot in the door when someone was trying to shut it. And the athletes who were inspired by that came in and burst the door wide open. And now we're talking about uh, the real issue at hand. And. Bruce Maxwell, more than anything, used the word inequality in our conversation again and again and again. That came up. And I think he and and all black athletes out there and and a vast, vast majority of black people in America live that on a daily basis. They see the way society, whether it's the criminal justice system, whether it's socioeconomically, whatever the case may be, is tilted against them. And they they want to start a conversation that gets us on a path where that isn't so much the case anymore or where that is, is less than even 1% because that 1% uh, will help out greatly. And, and ultimately, I, I think we're being naive if, if we ever believe that this is going to be something that uh, happens over weeks or months or years. This is something that's going to take decades, uh, you know, a century to, if not rid from America, then at least remedy. Uh, to, to have athletes at the center of it, though, I think says a lot about what sports means to us in our society. Uh, for everyone who says stick to sports, I think it, it is just the ultimate in hypocrisy because we can't prop these guys up as deities the way that we do and then ignore whatever they do off the field. When, when you deify somebody you are giving them that platform in order to show who they are as the whole person. And that, that's why I have so much respect uh, for, for what Bruce Maxwell did. And, and 
I'm willing to say it's courageous and I'm willing to say it's brave because he stood up against something that has been institutionalized in the United States for the entirety of its history and said, I'm going to use this privilege that was given to me uh, through this athletic talent and through my hard work to try and spread the message that is real to me and to let everybody know this is how I live. This is how we live and hope that in the end, that empathy wins out over provincialism. Mm. I don't know if it's surprising that no one immediately followed suit on Sunday's games after he had made his gesture on Saturday. One would think, I suppose, that having someone like Maxwell be the first might, if anything, put more pressure on a higher profile player to do it because it, you know, he's taking greater risk than someone whose financial security is already assured. On the other hand, maybe if a Jones or Sabathia, as you mentioned earlier, had been the first to do it, maybe that just would have been more influential because those are players who are greatly respected and known. So would you be surprised if he remains the only one to do this for, say, the rest of the season? Or would that not be surprising? Certainly, there was a, a long period during which no one did this. So it's not a given that anyone right. else will feel that they need to take the same stance immediately. I, I asked him that question, and he said he doesn't expect anybody else to do it. And and he's not mad about that either. Um, the you know, from his perspective, uh, everybody is going to fight the fight in the fashion that he sees fit. And uh, whether that is kneeling during the national anthem uh, or donating money to a cause or not doing anything but trying to make the world a better place in, in your own way, I think he feels like African-American players uh, or white players or Latino players are going to do that in their own way. And it, it would be wrong of him to judge them the way that others are judging him for his decision. Uh, I, I'd love to see more players do it because I think the more that do it, uh, the, the greater force comes behind it and the, uh, the, the better conversation we can have and the more urgent that it feels. But if it's just Bruce Maxwell out there alone bearing this burden, uh, as one of his friends told me, he has really broad shoulders <laughs> and he's, and he's going to be willing to do this. What, what I do hope though is, is that he takes a very similar path to what Colin Kaepernick did and uh, educates himself greatly on, on the subject at hand because the best activists out there are the most informed ones. And I, I never want to see anybody who's taking such a principled position uh, caught in a situation where he gets backed into a, a corner that he doesn't have an answer to. That, that's going to happen. It's bound to happen. But uh, all the sense that I got from what he said and from the people who know him is that he has the strength to endure through that because he, he is going to face and already has a lot of backlash and uh, this is going to be a mental, uh, physical, emotional strain on him. Just the length of, of this protest, because he said this isn't just a, a one time thing. So if he like Colin Kaepernick is going to keep kneeling until uh, 
the structural racial inequality of American society is gonna is is changed to a level where he's okay with it, then like this is gonna outlast his entire career. So, I was gonna say he's 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 a catcher. He already has enough pressure. Yeah, right. I mean, baseball's not a once a week sport either. So this is just something that he has to do now. And because now that he's done it, now that he's become so visible, if he stops, that's gonna be a profound political statement. So I've just curious if you gleaned anything else about him just sort of wrestling with the the gravity of, of choosing to to do this and be the first person to do this. I don't know if he if he recognizes just how difficult it's going to be to continue this on a daily basis, because everywhere he goes, the, there are going to be questions about it. And everyone he meets is going to want to talk about it. And there's going to be a lot of pressure from all different areas of the movement to, to use him as, uh, as an example. And that, that to me is maybe the greatest struggle that athletes who choose to speak up have to endure. And I, I'm part of that. I mean, I'm, I'm asking him for his words and, uh, and he's trusting me to, to put his perspective out uh, in a way that, that is is honest and is real. And I appreciate that trust from him because uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do when the country is as polarized as it is. But at the same time, uh, I think he's going to grow into it. And uh, when when I said he's the right person, uh, I, I do believe that. And I hope that I'm right in this situation because baseball needs that. Uh, The, you know, the NFL has a lot, of black players. And, uh, I mean, you know, of the 1600 or so players in the league, certainly more than half of them are black. I'm guessing what 70% in the NFL. I mean, it's a, it's a very high number in the NBA. The percentage is even higher. And so, uh, you have people there to support you on a daily basis and, and to remind you that what you're doing is righteous and, uh, it's, it's needed. I, I don't know if baseball, despite the statements of the A's and major league baseball, despite what the players association says, uh, has that institutional support in place to, to, to prop him up because he's going to need that. Uh, you can't do this all by yourself, uh, no matter how hard you try and, uh, you know, trying to scratch out a career while doing something that, uh, is more than a full-time job on the side is a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, and I guess the danger is, I mean, maybe there's some danger that he actually does lose money, lose a job over this. I hope that baseball is enlightened enough not to make a player pay, punish a player for this sort of stance. But, you know, even before this this protest, you wouldn't have said that Bruce Maxwell was a guy whose financial future is assured that he is guaranteed a, a roster spot, anything like that. And, you know, I don't know anything about football, but clearly Kaepernick, just from everything I've read, it is he's an extreme outlier in the fact that he does not have a job this year based on what he has accomplished in the past. Yeah. And the, the NFL, <laughs> like this is routine between him and Michael Sam. Like they, mm-hmm. it's obvious that they blacklist people in the NFL. And I don't know, you know, I can't think of anybody except for Barry Bonds who that's happened to. And yeah, in major league baseball. Right. And but, I mean, I guess the danger is that he could potentially 
lose his job or or a starting job in the not too distant future purely for baseball reasons. And it could look like it had something to do with this protest, which could discourage other players from speaking out on this issue or other issues in the future. So as you said, it's it's admirable that he did this in the position that he's in. But there's also that risk, I suppose, of how it would be perceived if his career does not take an upward trajectory from this point forward. Yeah, I'd like to think, though, that that people aren't going to let that get in the way. And maybe that's just me being optimistic. It probably is just me being optimistic, because as as he told me, uh, a lot of guys haven't done it because of the financial considerations. Um they, they don't want to lose uh, the great life that being a major league baseball player provides. They don't want to, uh, to fritter away the, the money that's potentially out there for them, for their family, for generations uh, of, of their family. But I think if somebody really, truly, deeply believes something, uh, he will feel compelled to do it despite the risks. And that that's where Bruce Maxwell came down on this. He knew that there was risk in doing this and he felt principled enough about his stance that he was willing to take it anyway. The great thing about this protest is that like the way that protests work is not like it's it's putting something unpleasant in the public eye to the point where average people can't ignore it. And that's what um that's what this is doing in Major League Baseball, because now like this, this issue of broad, you know, broad racial inequality is in, you know, it's it's at Major League Baseball's doorstep. And I'm I'm less interested in how the league and the teams uh, respond to this uh, short of, you know, continuing to employ Maxwell or anybody else who follows him, because it's going to be some vague milk toast, you know, uh, um, uh, problems, bad causes, good kind of. You know, kind of response, whatever it is. But at what point does Will, if he is the only person uh, who continues to kneel going in, you know, maybe going into next season, at what point will the silence of of the rest of Major League Baseball become conspicuous? Uh, you know, what though? I want to I want to rebut that point, because I feel like baseball was was not um, was not required to say anything here. And, and it would be a really bad look for the sport if MLB hadn't come out and said something. Um, but at the same time, the fact that, that the league did, I think uh, speaks to support that. I don't know. I would have believed was there until they said that. Well, I, I think the, the league would be shocked to learn because the way they talk about Jackie Robinson is very self-congratulatory. Like, Oh, we solved racism 70 years ago. Aren't we great? Like, <laughs> And that's true, but let's also look at the NFL. And I know the NFL is a, a different beast, but the the ferocity with which teams and the league clapped back at at what Trump said at the rally in Alabama was far stronger than I would have guessed. Far, far, far stronger. And I, I think it shows uh, that there is a breaking point. And and I hope that this is something that continues that they don't fold and kowtow and, uh, and, and take whatever he says in the future at face value. 
because we know he's not going to apologize for this. And we know he's not going to back away from it because that's not what this president does. I, I can't, I don't remember in his, you know, nine months in office now, him apologizing once for anything. So this is his statement on the record and this is what he's going to continue with. And uh, it, it gives sports, I think, that much more gravity and, and that much more import going forward because uh, Donald Trump has no problems making enemies wherever he goes. And to take on uh, something like the, the sporting culture in the United States, uh, boy, that, that is a, a really, really risky thing to do considering uh, just how many people out there look to sports uh, not just as their escape, but as their lives and their livelihoods. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Jeff. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I want to tell you about the Ringers Gambling Podcast. It is called Against All Odds with Cousin Sal, and you're not going to believe this, but it is hosted by Cousin Sal, the biggest degenerate gambler that I know. He's such a degenerate. He has three other degenerates that he calls the degenerate trifecta. And they break down every conceivable gambling thing you would ever want to gamble on. They even take you to Captain Morgan's make-believe casino, where Sal makes up props on, on all kinds of things. Sports, pop culture, you name it. You are going to want to get your gambling advice from these guys. Cousin Sal, he's been a staple on the BS podcast for the last 10 years. So good that we gave him his own podcast. Check it out, Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So let's transition to something else you tackled that also uh, an issue that also made a lot of cranky old people on the Internet angry. And that's uh, there was a a kid hit with a baseball that went in a stance at Yankee Stadium last week. And so this has reignited the the netting debate, Uh, you know, the whether we should whether every major league baseball stadium should extend the netting past the dugouts. Uh, After after I wrote, uh, I think the headline on the piece was Major League Baseball's morally repugnant position. Uh, so uh, another writer, uh, who will go unnamed sent me an email and, and I think he was a little bit insulted by the idea that, uh, him not wanting nets, uh, equals moral repugnance because he doesn't want nets. And, and his argument was essentially, I like watching a baseball game without netting. Uh, why should that be taken away? And I I suppose I understand why individuals want to watch games without nets because they have done that for the entirety of their baseball watching lives. And because of a fear that a net being there is going to harm and ruin their experience, I guess I'm just a greater good guy. And and maybe it's because I have a a 10 year old and a five year old and I like to sit in seats along the baselines without fear that one of my children is going to get hit in the face and and get their skull fractured or or suffer a TBI or uh, God knows what can happen. I just I've I've seen enough cases where things flying into the stands, whether it's shattered bats or 100 plus mile per hour line drives. Uh, affect people's lives. I, I wrote a story, I think it might have been my first year at Yahoo, uh, which was 2006, about a woman named Susan Rhodes, who was at Dodger Stadium. And this was back when maple bats were exploding all over the place. And 
a bat went into the stands and she didn't see it and it hit her in the face and broke her jaw. And the next five years of her life were, were different. I mean, her life was literally changed because there was not a net there. And I just have trouble obliging the idea that the experience of certain people supersedes the safety of those surrounding them. And, and I, I just don't believe the idea that if you were to pose this scenario to people, either you can stay behind a net and be a lot safer, or you can watch a game without a net, that they would choose the latter. I, I think that a, a vast majority of people would take the safety and the you know 2% uh, vision loss that you get through modern netting and mm-hmm. I don't even think it's that much. It's yeah, it's imperceptible. <laughs> no, but right. they, it, it is. They they actually have ratings though on nets these days. Uh, I think the you know recently they've gotten up to ninety seven percent visibility. And I know mm-hmm. I know my eyes when I'm sitting behind the net adjust immediately, and and literally it's like a net isn't there. You're you're right. you see the game like you see it on TV because the brain is a beautiful thing and it it allows. You know, it focuses your eyes on the things that you want to focus on. And this debate was had in hockey more than a decade ago. And there were holdouts then, too, people who are very similar to this writer, who are huge fans of the sport and believe that believed rather that uh, their experience was going to change because of the net. And then they went to games with nets and realized, oh, I still love watching hockey even with the net there and the fact that now we're able to watch this game without that little thing in the back of our mind saying, well, do we have to be paying attention? Will at a all child time? die? Yeah. And yeah. Look, as if paying attention, this is my other favorite thing about this. Is yeah. I'm just going to yeah. shout. I don't even know if there's a question at the end of this. The, <laughs> like this isn't about kids not paying attention, like, or, or looking at their phones. Like you're not going to be able to do anything if you're trying to barehand a hundred mile an hour baseball coming at you, like it's just, it's such a self aggrandizing, selfish, macho, um, like things are, things were better when, when they were more dangerous back in my day, just total nonsense argument. Like it's, I just, I hope it doesn't play out like it did in the NHL where a child literally had to die in order to, to get this to change. It's just, I wonder how much of it just is a misunderstanding of what a net is and what a net looks like. Cause if we were talking about like some kind of tennis net type of material, I mean, if this were significantly impacting the viewing experience and making baseball unpleasant to watch or something, then I could see that there would be an argument where you take a certain risk in return for a certain reward, which is the fun of watching a baseball game. But that is not the trade-off here. You still get the fun of a baseball game. They've been doing it in Japan for quite some time. The crowds seem to enjoy baseball there. Seems to be just fine in the parks that do have netting. So I wonder how much of it is just that net sounds like an unpleasant thing to have between you and a baseball field. And then when you actually see it and you, as you said, spend a few minutes looking at a game through a net, you realize that it is not what you thought it was. And it really doesn't affect your viewing experience at all. So even aside from the safety concerns, it's just not a, a significant detraction to your enjoyment of the game. 
two things here. Number one, uh, the idea that Annette is going to detract from the game, the, literally the only thing that it's going to take away are foul balls. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If a baseball player tosses you a ball and you catch it, that's 99% as good as a foul ball. You still got a major league ball. And if major league baseball gives each team an extra thousand balls a year saying, Hey, let's do this uh, and make sure to engage with your fans a little more. Uh, that experience, frankly, might even be better getting a personal connection mm-hmm. with that player who tossed you a ball. The second part and the thing to me that's most flummoxing out of all this is major league baseball more than anything loves its in-person experience. It makes its money off of TV, but it really tries to sell the in-person experience. And you know what the in-person experience uh, consists of? It's, it's not just the game on the field. It's the peanut vendor walking around. It is the fact that they have apps that they want you to look at in the middle of the freaking game. <laughs> and so the idea that people are burying their heads in their phone Yeah, they are, because Major League Baseball has told you that that's the right thing to do when you're viewing a game in 2017. Mm -hmm. So when I when I look at the baseball rule, which is the the longstanding court ruling that says when you enter the park, you are doing so at your own risk and you are acknowledging the risks inherent there. It's a whole lot different game in 2017 than it was decades ago when courts first held up this rule. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, that it stands the same these days, it, it's just a fallacy. And to me, there is gross negligence going on here from Major League Baseball to say that you should do this, but we're also expecting you to look out for yourself. Uh, the two things run in direct conflict to one another. Yeah, and whether MLB had anything to do with it or not, and I tend to think not, Balls are being hit harder now, and they're being thrown (laughs) harder now. And so, in theory, at least, there is even less reaction time than there used to be and even greater potential for injury. So that's just another factor to add on top of all of this. Yeah, it's – look, it's it's scary. And the the thing that, to me, is most compelling here is – that the players want this. Yeah. Like if the play, you know why the players want it? Because they know how dangerous it is when a ball is flying at you at a hundred miles per hour. It scares the shit out of them too. Mm -hmm. And they do this for a living and they have gloves on and they've spent their entire lives trying to feel these things the right way. The idea that somebody in the stands is as equipped is 10% as equipped to handle these things as the players themselves. It, it, honestly, it is a wonder that only one person has been, has knowingly or has been known to die in the stands. And that was a kid back in 1970 at Dodger stadium, got hit in the head with a foul ball, uh, shook it off, went home uh, and, and couldn't, couldn't maintain his balance. And four days later uh, he died. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing to me. That that is the only death that we've seen. But the number of lives that have been uh, ruined by getting hit with a foul ball, uh, there's a lot more than I think people realize. Mm -hmm. Another topic you wrote about recently is the one that will be the biggest story in baseball as soon as the playoffs are over. So looking ahead just a bit to the Shohei Otani low dollar 
sweepstakes. Do you have any sense now? I'm sure this will change 50 times between now and November, but any sense now of, I guess, what factors might determine where he ends up or what kind of shenanigans might take place if there's any possibility for shenanigans or just some kind of unorthodox contract structure to take place? Shenanigans always are taking place because it's baseball. And if you're trying to use an Apple watch to send signals to second base, <laughs> I mean, that that's just, that shows you baseball uh, teams will do anything and everything at their disposal to try and win games. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I, I wonder if Shohei Otani is ready for what's about to hit him. Yeah. Um, from, from everything I've been told, and there may be people who are, you know, sandbagging on this and this decision has been made, but from everything I've gleaned, he doesn't have an agent yet. And uh, I think that is going to come down right around October or so. Um, when the Japanese season is over, when everyone's heads have gotten cleared, uh, there have been people over there uh, for years now trying to ingratiate themselves. Uh, once he gets an agent, though, uh, that that to me is going to be the big question. Will that agent try to convince him that coming over right now is not the right thing to do and delay it? And, and I think that there's a distinct possibility that that happens because uh, an agent's job, among other things, is to maximize the financial return for the player. And uh, if if you're leaving hundreds of millions of dollars potentially on the table, that's not maximizing financial return. Uh, that being said, if he is intransigent in this position and he really does want to come over, uh, I have absolutely no clue what he <laughs> wants right now because he's he's a different cat. I mean, he grew up in the sticks of Japan and one person uh, who doesn't know him but knows people that do know him use the word farm boy. Uh, He's still a guy who lives in the dorms. I mean, he's a uh, 23-year-old in Japan uh, who's one of the most popular players in that country, if not the most popular. Uh, He is considered a very good-looking guy in Japan. Like, women love Shohei Otani. Absolutely love him. And so he could have the world by the balls if he really wanted to. He could have fame. He could have fortune. Uh, You know, I don't know if you read Lee Jenkins' story on Dwight Howard earlier this week, but I I almost see him uh, in in a similar light uh, that when he comes to to the United States, the hardest part isn't going to be baseball. It's going to be adjusting culturally and recognizing. Oh, pardon me recognizing everything that he has uh, and that he's capable of having, because when he comes here, he's going to be an immediate star. Uh, He's going to be the most interesting player in baseball next year. I think we'd all love it. If Mike Trout were that guy, I think we all think Bryce Harper can be that guy, but Otani is going to be fascinating to people because a, he's not from the United States. And I think there's something inherently fascinating about uh, the, the mystery and what we don't know. Uh, and B, he's a two-way player, and we haven't seen that uh, in decades. So if he does end up, especially with an American League team, if his desire to play on a daily basis or a semi-regular basis, at least in addition to pitching, is fulfilled, then it's going to be one hell of a story that I think is going to capture a lot of America the way baseball hasn't in a long time. Do you think there's going to be any um, 
any resistance to the idea of him being a two-way player if that's what it takes to sign him because I mean, we've, we've seen sort of teams sort of playing around with the combination third catcher fifth outfielder and mop up guy and the Rays are playing Brendan McKay both ways in the minor leagues so, so do you think that sort of signals a, a bigger league-wide willingness to to go ahead with this where maybe it wouldn't have been that wouldn't have happened five ten years ago well let's remember there was Casey Kelly too and I think the Red Sox tried got when was Casey Kelly a prospect seven eight years ago I mean it's it's mm. been quite a while now and uh, he played shortstop, uh, I think, his, for for a year, uh, and they recognized that he was just it wasn't going to work there, and that he had a better future as a pitcher. Now, in the end, it turns out uh, he wasn't a major league caliber pitcher either. But I think the willingness has been there, and I think that teams are going to be very flexible with their ideals uh, on this to get the player. I think all 15 American League teams will say, want a DH? Okay. Want to play some outfield? Cool. That's fine. <laughs> because he is so good as a pitcher that, and, and such a bargain. I mean, if he was going to cost $175 million, it's a different story. You're not going to put your $175 million pitcher out there. Uh, but the fact that he's coming as cheap as he is, uh, I, I think that's going to buy him the ability to go out and say, this is a prerequisite. If, if in fact, that's something you want to do, this is a prerequisite for uh, me signing. Now, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, there, there's been no indication given to anyone with whom I've spoken that this is something that's an absolute necessity for him. I just think that a lot of people in the game are expecting that to be part of the package. But we can also look at a scenario where Otani says Japanese pitchers, uh, by and large, have had difficulty transitioning to the United States and to the different schedule and to the every fifth day uh, starting rotation. Uh, maybe it's best that I focus on pitching and do some pinch hitting every so often to, to keep the bat fresh and to keep the bat path correct and to keep my swing good. And maybe in the future, uh, we'll take a look for that. It's the the whole thing is just so fascinating. And in addition, uh, you know, one of the more fascinating parts to me is if there is an under the table guarantee that he's going to get a contract uh, after his first season, and he comes out and he's just middling and mediocre in his first year, uh, is the team going to abide by that promise that they made to him? <laughs> and and if if not. Where does that leave Otani? Is he going to want to continue playing for that team? Is he going to continue wanting to play in Major League Baseball? Is he going to ask for a trade? Just the different permutations that can come from this uh, is what, to me, makes it such an incredible story and, and one that I'm really excited to follow. All right. Yeah, that's the the shenanigans, the second contract stuff. That's all I'm very, very interested in, in what actually comes out. And if like something, something scandalous does break, like how Major League Baseball enforces its stated desire to avoid shenanigans. So it's mm -hmm. that's it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Jeff Passan is the author of The Arm, which was inspired in part by your desire to keep your kids from getting hurt. So if you're worried about that with foul balls, maybe we need a follow up. We need the net. The netting get to work. <laughs> Listen, we 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 made it. We made it through a summer uh, and fall ball without uh, a single arm injury on the Brookwood Royals this year. So, uh, as as pitching coach, I'm feeling uh, 
I'm feeling very good at this point and I'm probably going to come back on the podcast next year and talk about my failures as a coach. So I just want to get this in right now and, and get it on the record. I got him through 10 years old. I made it. <laughs> All right. You can find Jeff writing at Yahoo. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Passan. Thank you as always. Pleasure's mine, boys. Thanks for having me. So apropos of ab- absolutely nothing, except I faved this about six weeks ago and it's been floating. I meant to bring it up on the pod and just keep forgetting about it. So Kyle Bodie, a former uh, podcast guest of ours, uh, said mm-hmm. that uh, he had encountered on Reddit a, a new stat to go with Toot Bland. Toot Bland, of course, is thrown out on the basis like a nincompoop, uh, mm-hmm. if, which is one of my favorite uh baseball neologisms uh, Mm -hmm. of the 21st century. So Reddit, because they get very upset if if you (laughs) you don't point out that this thing existed on Reddit first, uh, that Reddit proffers fart slam fielder allows runner to score like a moron. And I just want to (laughs) throw the full weight of uh, whatever social capital I have behind endorsing the term fart slam uh, into the <laughs> into the baseball lexicon. OK, I'll back you on that. I will. I will put my hand on your shoulder as you uh, make that gesture. So we have one more thing I wanted to mention is that Clayton Kershaw is scheduled for one more start this season. I believe it would come in Coors Field where he has occasionally had a little trouble, as most pitchers do. He is sitting right now in a 2.21 ERA on the season and a 2.35 ERA career. And so his streak of lowering his career ERA in each successive season is still alive. If the season ended today, it would extend to, I think, a ninth consecutive season now, dating back to his sophomore year. And I'm wondering whether the Dodgers start him here and whether they jeopardize the streak. So his career ERA, 2.35, he entered the season at 2.37. So he has lowered it, but very slightly. So if he were to have some blow-up start, I haven't done the ERA math to calculate exactly how many runs he could allow and how many outs. But if he were to have a disaster start or something, I think that would probably tip him over where he started the season and that would be the end of the streak. I like this streak. I want it to continue. I'm nervous and he's been good lately, Mm -hmm. but I'm still scared and I want him to just take a break. It's the end of the season. Give him a little rest. Just let him sit on this streak extension. Yeah, I don't think that's, I mean, not only is there the Ted Williams precedent, but Dave Roberts (laughs) is sort of managing like he, he wants to win every game. Um, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I don't know, think it's going to happen, which, you know what I mean? I know that sounded stupid, but after the, uh, <laughs> right. yeah, it's just looking at his game log. He jumped up his ERA about 20 points the last time he faced the Rockies and that required, uh, four <laughs> yeah. runs and three and two thirds innings. So it like, yeah. like just a bad start probably wouldn't do it, but an like, it's definitely within the realm of possibility. Yeah. So I'm going to be white knuckling that one myself. I yeah. will be watching to see if Clayton uh, can extend the streak. I, I think I might like your fascination with this more than I liked your fascination uh, with Matt Albers never having saved a major <laughs> league game. 
<laughs> in terms of like yeah. if, if we were going to do a draft of things that Ben Ben Lindbergh is interested in, this would have this would be yeah. near the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was an obscure player with an obscure record, and this is a all time great player with a not so obscure record. But I am fully invested in it, so I suppose I wish him well in his next start. Although I guess that means in a way I'm inadvertently rooting against the Rockies, which is not a stance yeah, that I wanted cushion. to take at the beginning of the season. Well, yeah, so. well, actually, if they lose this game, it makes it easier. It's going to be very, very difficult no matter what happens for the Brewers to completely pass the Rockies. But yeah. this could set up a one game playoff if, you know, because mm. if, if yeah, Kershaw that, takes the ideal, outcome. yeah, if Kershaw wins, then the Brewers only have to make up one game. And that's absolutely possible. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe. Maybe this isn't completely out of whack with the other things that we're rooting for. We should make a list and try to, you know, or a spreadsheet and try to make sure everything is aligned. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will be back on Thursday to talk more. You have been listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network.